A time comes when you're all alone, when you've come to the end of everything that can happen to you. It's the end of the world. Even grief, your own grief, doesn't answer you anymore. And you have to retrace your steps, to go back among people. It makes no difference who. You're not choosy at times like that, because even to weep, you have to go back to where everything starts all over, back among people. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SickBook Radio and distributed by thesickbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's November 21st, 2020, and far in the distance, the tugboat whistled. It was summoning all the barges, the whole city, and the sky, and the countryside, and ourselves to carry us all away. Or that's what Louis Celine thought on this fall installment of the 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club. Yes, folks, tonight we will be journeying to the end of the night. Louis Ferdinand Celine was the pen name of Louis Ferdinand Auguste de Douce, a French novelist, pamphleteer, and physician. He developed a new style of writing that modernized French literature. His most famous work is the 1932 novel, Journey to the End of the Night. Céline used a working class spoken style of language in his writings and attacked what he considered to be the overly polished bourgeois language of the academy. His works influenced a broad array of literary figures, not only in France, but also in the English-speaking world and elsewhere in the Western world. This includes authors associated with modernism, existentialism, black comedy, and the Beat Generation. Céline's vocal support for fascism during the Second World War and his authorship of anti-Semitic and pro-fascist pamphlets have made him a controversial figure which has complicated his legacy as a cultural icon. Here's how it started. I'd never said a word, not one word. How are you doing tonight, Snore? And thank you for another season in the tunnel. Yes, very good. Yeah. Excellent intro as usual. <laughs> Why am I relating to our, our guests that we spent another, another season in the tunnel? Yeah, why is it the tunnel? Because this book yeah. is dark, man. This is so dark. Oh, there's beauty in it too, and uh, and goodness. <laughs> was it what you thought it was gonna be, or did you know what you're getting into? Um, no, I I thought it would be depressing. Um, I thought it would be a really. I I was sort of, I I didn't know what to expect, but I I had heard that it's really sort of a. Uh, depressing book that uh that was one of Sartre's favorites and and all of this so I was I was kind of afraid to read it but actually reading it um it's really funny <laughs> you know it's a, I, I think it's a really funny laugh out loud book well initially so I was saying I mean I was of the mindset of World War One and I was thinking about World War One books as we started in and I think that's only the first third of this and so, uh, as you were talking about this before, you were saying that this influenced Jack Kerouac, and I can see that later on. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually uh, 
I'm reading this book by Ginsburg. It's actually a um, sort of a compilation of his lectures that he did in um, Naropa. Um, it's called The Best Minds of My Generation, but he's he, he talks about that too, how how much of an influence Celine was on, yeah, the beat generation, right? Like, um, so he's saying like, yeah, even Kerouac's prose, I mean, sorry, Celine's prose and uh, his, he calls it his paranoid attitude also affected Kerouac. Um, but also, um, I think he, it's, it's, it was actually Burroughs that introduced Celine to Kerouac and everybody else. Um, so I can see a lot of Burroughs in, um, in this book too, even with the, uh, especially with the black humor stuff. Um, it, Wait, it's like, almost uh, like, like Burroughs, uh, viewpoint, but like Kerouac's prose kind of, there's something really accessible about the language. It's another book with with really beautiful it's interesting because it is really uh it, it it it's not highfalutin no not at all like um uh yeah in this course that ginsburg was doing at at naropa he was um this book was was on the reading list okay the students had to uh read this but um his directions for reading this was just pick it up anywhere and read some of the prose, you know, and all the way through the prose is good enough and clear enough and, and really emphasizes, um, what the beats were trying to do, uh, that, yeah, you can pick it up anywhere basically. And it, it's true. Like, uh, anywhere in this book, it's, you can find nuggets, you know, it's just <laughs> amazing stuff. What I read is that of his works, this is probably the most plotted. Can you he, explain what he, what's going on here for listeners? Yeah, I haven't read any of his other books. The only other book that I even came across once at a at a used bookstore was um, what is it, Death Death on the Installment Plan, which looks like a good one too. It's it's the same um, it's the same translator, I think. It's called uh, Ralph Mannheim, who does like an excellent job of translating. Like I don't know, this is the weird thing. I don't know if it has been translated before this, but it it must have because I don't think this was translated by this guy. Uh, I'm just checking it now. Um, Sixty six. So the Beats had to have read it in English before that. Like Kerouac could have read it in the original French, but I don't like. Um, Ginsburg and Burroughs wouldn't have read it in French, so there must be another translation. So I don't. Did you come across that, or no? Uh, do you know no, I no. mean, so it seems like it's possible that this guy. Re well, no. So I know that there was a version that just came out in two thousand six, and it might be the same translation, but like just a updated. Yeah, I haven't heard of another translation coming out. Um, no, maybe not. Maybe. They just re-released it. But there must be an earlier translation somehow, because they, they read it way before 66. Like, I think they were influenced by this in the in the 40s. Well, uh, so did you happen to read the essay by Will Self about this in the New York Times? I don't think so, no. 
Yeah. Ooh. So he was saying, if you can read French, it's it's really amazing to read in French. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah like you're saying, Kerouac definitely, I think, was uh, bilingual. So he probably. Yeah, he didn't he didn't speak English until he was six years old. Yeah. Mm. Well, so did you love this? Was it, was it? Well, anyway, back. Let's not get there. Let's let's do plot. <laughs> let's do plot. So and so yeah. like I was my my initial point was, you know, I in my head when I started it felt like uh, Hemingway. You know, it felt like some of those World War One books. But then once, you know, it's just a little chunk of World War One, and then he's off, you know, to Africa. Or you know, it seems like there's just another adventure around the corner. And so at that point in time, it felt more like like on the road or something, you know, where mm, mm. or even um, I don't know if I read it, but I think I did. Kafka America. Did you ever read? Oh, it? yeah. 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 I don't think I've read that one. Um, well, um, I was reading one review and they said it's a combination. I'm just looking this up just to make sure uh, make sure of this. So it's a combination of uh, All's Quiet on the Western Front and then Heart of Darkness. And there's a really close link to that book. I'm sure he was um, influenced. And then another book, I forget which one, uh, In the Grapes of Wrath. The Grapes of Wrath I haven't read, but uh, um, tying into the American side of it. But actually those three... Um, if you take those three, that's only half the book. <laughs> the second half of the book, he, he's already back in France and working as a uh, a doctor for poor people in this poor section of France. And then he has a whole other series of adventures in France. So it's it's only the first half of the book that he starts out in the war. And it's just his his terrible experiences in World War One. Um some of the best anti-war prose I've read, you know, anywhere. Like getting into the, yeah, we we could start, um, I won't get too far into it, maybe we could get deeper into this after, but just getting into like uh, what war is and what it does to you and and uh, trying to escape from war and everything else uh, uh, and how war just ties into the, the rest of the society. Um, so that's the, that's the first part. And then he ends up getting out of the war. Like finally he, he basically goes insane and he's, he's deemed mentally unfit for it. And then he's able to, um, get a ship to the French colonies in Africa. I think it's Togo that he's, that he's in. And then, uh, and then the, uh, heart of darkness stuff happens where he, he ends up having to go up a river and deal with this madman who's at this uh, um, outpost, like this uh, colonial outpost. I but think was it's with the madman like, Robinson? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we'll have to get into Robinson. Robinson who, is who the Robinson most... Is. <laughs> well, I, I feel like Robinson is Tyler Durden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, something like that, I think, yeah? Where it's, um, it's, it's like his shadow projection... Like, yeah, yeah, almost like that. Um, so I haven't looked into this um, 
that far, you know. Like, I, well, I tried to find something on this. I couldn't, you know. But um, the only thing I found about Robinson is that he's kind of, he's named after Robinson Caruso, right? Um, so that's really weird, right? Like, so you think of Robinson Caruso, and he's one guy on an uninhabited island, right? Trying to survive on his own. And then he meets he meets a native there called Man Friday. So it's almost like um, the main character, Ferdinand Bardamu, is is the Man Friday. And like you said, um, he's Robinson Caruso. But it's almost so. It's even. It, it may be even more um, than he's just projecting Robinson as as this kind of like a. Tyler Durden type character. It might be like nobody exists except for <laughs> except for him. Like it, he's so he's so disgusted with all of human society and every every aspect almost. You know, like um, there are things that he that he does uh, um, that he does agree with. You know, that we can get into too. But it's almost like he's it's almost as if. Uh, Everybody else is not there. It's just it's just a phantom projection or something. So the the whole of the world is the uninhabited island, and it's only him and Robinson who exist. Um. So in and then, like the weird thing is, like it it reads as a realistic novel in a way, but he's always. Yeah, he's always losing his mind. Like he's he he. Definitely lost his mind in World War One, shell shock, and then he, and then, uh, and that keeps reoccurring. Finally, he gets yeah, discharged from the military, and then he goes to Africa and gets fever, gets malarial fever, and then he, and then he, he has bouts of fever all the way through the rest of the novel, and you, they come on all of a sudden, and you don't know it. It's it's really weird how how that those parts are written. You don't know exactly what is real and what's not, um, and he doesn't help you in the in the narration. Um, so so then he um, so yeah he gets f the fever in Africa and then he tries to get out of there. He ends up getting sold on a slave galley ends up in new york where he escapes and then his description of new york is just amazing i think that's one of the best parts of the the book oh is that when yeah i think you're right um where he is a flea statistician yeah yeah <laughs> and, 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 and what is that you know like is that is that real or is that something he's <laughs> he's well it's, he's it seemed like it a doesn't... joke but at the same time like to analyze uh, the fleas, you know, in and among poverty, you know, like there's, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. 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 You, it's, it's hard to believe that people would take him seriously about developing a, a new fangled method to count fleas, you know, like it, um, like it, it because he, when he arrives in New York, he's full on, fever dreaming you know it's it's the whole thing is just a hallucination for him um 
Like I wish I, I have it. My book now it's just filled with little pieces of paper that I that where I have quotes that I loved, but um, but I can't find anything because it's so. Is it, there are too many of them. Well, but here's, uh, here's what's interesting about um, Bardemo. Is that his name? Yeah. Everything is written written so clearly that you I and because that is this kind of um, Jack Kerouac style, I have to believe that you know most of the stuff happened, but then the the detail is so clear that that's what makes it so like shocking. Like, yeah. Like some of these you know horrible scenes must have really taken place like when uh the couple beats their child oh yeah yeah yes there's brutal stuff in this but oh the the thing about so when i was hating this book and i think i was hating a lot this book it's because i don't think i like bardemo uh yeah he's not he's not such a nice guy but uh you read what he does as a doctor and it's there's the the one passage like he goes back to uh paris and he works in this really poor district of paris that doesn't really exist um but it yeah districts like that exist where he and everybody's basically poor and so he's a he's a poor he's he's a doctor himself living in poverty and he's he hardly charges anything to anybody because he's like uh yeah when you're a doctor working for the rich um like it's it's okay you just feel like a, a flunky right but when you're uh when you're working for the poor you feel like a thief to take money um so he has all these like you can see how originally when this book came out that um people on the left like like socialists and anarchists etc they all thought this was great um because it's a it's a a massive um condemnation of modern capitalist society and and it speaks in in terms of the working class right it's it's a it's it's really anti-rich all the way through, you know. Um, uh, but then the shocking thing is that he he took a, this kind of fascist turn, um, which, um, like we talked about before with other figures, you know, it's not it's not entirely shocking because a lot of people went that way at that time, um, maybe without knowing where it would lead. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm almost to the uh, almost to the New York section, which is um, which is excellent. Um, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I think I so he's he, oh go ahead. Yeah. I was gonna say I think I I enjoyed the first half a lot more than I enjoyed the second half. Hmm. Yeah, the first half is more of an adventure novel. Right. But it's the second half where he really gets into the journey to the end of the night. Um, and what, and is that, that, what does that speak to? 
that involves the whole plot with uh, Grandma Henriel, um and Robinson and the uh, and and the the couple the uh, the couple the her son and and the daughter-in-law, and they end up wanting to kill her. <laughs> uh, yeah, that to me that that's sort of the plot. Like he's going along with Robinson into that, and and if you if what you're saying is is real it's it's maybe he who is involved like heavily involved in that trying to um like working for them to to basically to kill off this old grandma <laughs> i don't know i don't know i don't think i read anything anywhere that celine had any problem with his vision right no no i don't i don't i haven't read about that either like like Robinson, you yeah, mean? Yeah, like Robinson definitely almost blows himself up on attempt number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I just want to can I can I read this part about uh, coming into uh, into New York? This is a this is a great part. So they're on the ship coming from Africa, and these guys are basically like galley slaves, you know, like completely poor, dirt of third of the dirts you know like yeah so um yeah waking the next day we realized on opening the portholes that we had reached our destination and what a sight it was talk of surprises what we suddenly discovered through the fog was so amazing that at first we refused to believe it but then we were face to face with it galley slaves or not we couldn't help laughing seeing it right there in front of us just imagine that city was standing absolutely erect New York was a standing city. Of course, we'd, we'd seen cities, fine ones too, and magnificent seaports. But in our part of the world, cities lie along the coast or on rivers. They recline on the landscape, awaiting the traveler. Well, this American city had nothing languid about her. She, she stood there as stiff as a board, not seductive at all, terrifyingly stiff. <laughs> we laughed like fools. You can't help laughing at a city built straight up and down like that but we could only laugh from the neck up because of the cold blowing in from the sea through a gray and pink mist, a brisk, sharp wind that attacked our trousers and the chinks in that wall. I mean the city streets, which engulfed the wind-borne clouds. Our galley spung its narrow wake just outside the docks, and at the end of the shit-colored bay, a splash with the schools of rowboats and avid tooting tugs. Yeah, that sounds like Kerouac, right? Like... <laughs> Well, it, they didn't like they didn't know where they were going. I think he was no, trying... no. They just ended up in the out of the fog, and there's New York. Like imagine that you're coming from Africa, and then <laughs> yeah. Well, part of what I was trying to do was, like, I think you you were doing this a little bit too, is just trying to keep everyone now by when they were born, kind of trying to put people in their place. You know, it's mm -hmm. like where does where does he fit in? Um, let's see. So, like, your beats are born in the twenties, right? Yeah, Kerouac is twenty-two. Um, and um, you know, this Burroughs, is the... Burroughs is older. Like, yeah, Burroughs is maybe uh, ten years older or something like that. Uh huh. Uh. But Gas was also born in the twenties, I think, right? Didn't you? Yeah. Point? Yeah. And so. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's that's the greatest generation. These are the ones that would have fought in World War Two, 
but um, like Hemingway and those guys, you know, he, Hemingway is born in 1899. Mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell was like 1904. You know, so that's they would have. Let's see. I think Joseph Campbell's too young for World War One. That's yeah, definitely. Uh, 1914 and 1919. He's 1914, eh? N- oh no, no, no. He, he's born 1904. 1904. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but then like Wolf and Joyce, you know, 1882. Oh, so that was an interesting thing from that essay that I was talking about. So, uh, you know, somebody asked Joyce what he was doing during World War One, and he said, "I was writing Ulysses." And then, you know, the same question to Celine, and he was living Journey to the End of the Night. Yeah, yeah. So he's, I'm just checking his dates. He's, he's 1894, so he's a little, little younger than, uh, than Joyce, well, 12 years. Um, but, uh, so he's probably, he's probably around the same age as Hemingway. Like, Hemingway's a little younger, too. Do you know when? Hemingway's 1899. Yeah, yeah, it's the same, same, pretty well the same generation, those guys. Yeah, but so the thing that when we read a book like this that we take for granted is that there were, there were things that you weren't so, supposed to speak about or say aloud, and he's, he's breaking taboos left and right in this book. Yeah. Um, but now... It, it, Including even his writing style is, is breaking so many taboos. Like it's, it's breaking. Like like Proust was the big writer at that time, right? Like, uh, and he, he, um, Celine in this book he calls Proust like a half ghost, <laughs> you know, like half half there. <laughs> I wonder what his dates are. Proust is earlier, so he's uh, like he's earlier than the modernists, I think. Uh, let me check. Yeah, eighteen seventy-one. Yeah. So he's he, so he's in between um, he's in between Yates and and uh, Joyce. Hmm. It's so interesting that these the people that were born, you know, and spent the first part of their lives in the in the nineteenth century. Like, wh- when did Young die? Was it like uh, in the sixties? Um, yeah, I thought so. I can't uh, check him now. That would have been just an amazing journey. 61. Yeah, you're right. 61. To go, you know, like from steam power to the moon. Yeah. Or yeah, horsepower exactly. in some cases. So, yeah, here's another guy. So, Young is um, 75, and then uh, Proust is uh, 71. So, yeah, no, it, it it helps. Yeah, it helps to get the dates of these guys. Um, Ezra Pound always always did that in his um, in his critical writings. He would always put the dates and uh, make lists of authors and like just like we're doing, like trying to fit them into generations and and try to work out who might have influenced who. Um, so it's it's a good thing to do. Um, but it's Celine is weird because uh, it's hard to really place him into like a group of writers. He almost seems to stand alone. I can't. I like 
maybe there are other people he associated with, but I, I, I don't know enough about him. Yeah. Uh, so like, um, I was wondering whether or not, so like, is, is he, is he a historical footnote? Um, do you need to read Celine? You know? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I would say, you know, like, especially if you're interested in, um, like if you're interested in the, in the beats, you know, and, um, like the beats are the, the beats you may or may not like them, you know, but they had a massive influence on, uh, 1960s counterculture and then, and then so on, which continues on, you know, and then he, Celine was such an influence on the beats, you know, uh, so I think unless you read him, um, you read somebody like Kerouac and Burroughs and it seems like they're coming out of nowhere, but actually they're not. You know? um, but it, there's a, there's people like, uh, Bukowski too. He's massive influence on Bukowski and, and, uh, Joseph Heller and Vonnegut and, um, Jim Morrison, you know, like that, that song, I, uh, End of the night. End of the, like, <laughs> that's that's this book. Uh, so I think uh, I think he should be read. You know, it's it's kind of a shame that he's not as well known. Yeah. Um, I mean, so there is a lot of problematic stuff in the book, of course, because it definitely is kind of this like Western male perspective like that's the lens that we're looking i mean he definitely like the william kohler character is you know <laughs> he hates everyone equally you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. but definitely you can tell that you know um from a colonial point of view you know like this is the top of the food chain as far as i mean even though it it's not the top of the food chain because it, it really digs into poverty, but it's still that that Western, like, patriarchal white supremacist. Well, it, like, yeah, in terms of just his own society, though, it's like um, he's at he's at the bottom. You know? Right. Like, uh, and then he, this part where he goes into uh, into America, into the U.S., he's like he's like saying I felt more alone in the states than I did in Africa. You know, he has more sympathy for the Africans than he does for the Americans. Like this section, um, <laughs> somebody's saying I, this is not Bardamu, but he's saying, "Come on back with us, you fool!" They said, "Believe us." Oh, these are other people on the ship, you know, telling him to come back and don't don't leave at New York. So he's saying, "Come on back with us, you fool." So these are other galley slaves, international European galley slaves. Come back with us, you fool. They said, believe us, it's not worth it. You'll make yourself sicker than you are. We'll tell you what Americans are like. They're either millionaires or skunks. There's nothing in between. The shape you're in, <laughs> you certainly won't be seeing any millionaires. But don't worry, you'll get your fill of skunks. You can be sure of that. And it won't be long. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then he goes that's the way they spoke to me a bunch of jerks cocksuckers subhumans they made me sick <laughs> beat it the whole lot of you i told them you're green with envy that all we'll see if the americans skin me alive but one thing is sure you've all got lady fingers between your legs and limp ones at that 
yeah, he's talking about how how beautiful the American women are. Uh. Well, so the, yeah, I mean, so like that's he has kind of a problematic relationship with women. Yeah, well, yeah, totally. That's why it would have been nice to hear Lacey come on and see what she has to say about that, um, or anybody like any any other woman just to talk about. Like, I, I wonder if uh, they could even stomach well, this book. Yeah, um, and that's that's what I wonder about, like whether or not if it's too too dated in some respects. He um. Uh, yeah, he he has terrible relationships with women all the way through, except for one woman who he meets in um, Detroit, who's um, she's a prostitute. Um, oh. And What's her name? Her, Molly? her name is Molly. Yeah. Yeah. He falls in love with Molly. But he still broke Molly's heart by leaving. She didn't want him to go. Yeah, but she also understood that he he had to go. You know, that was his. Like she was the only one who really understood him, and he tried to understand her. There was actual love there, and then he he kind of regrets leaving her. Um, well, so you know but, which character I thought Bartimo was is this is this is like Johnny Truant again. Hmm. And I, that was one of the reasons why, because he's a you know like a twenty year old kid. And he thinks he knows everything, and he kind of hates everything, and and then he's telling all these cock and bull stories. Yeah, he's kind of like uh, yeah, a combination of Johnny Truant and his and Johnny Truant's friend, who is um, I can't remember his name. Do you remember? Uh, I had a, had a funny name. Yeah, um, it's Robinson. <laughs> Robinson. Yeah, yeah, it does seem like the two of them. Oh, that's it's it's a dumb name, but yeah, I know, I know, I can see it, um, like Rex or something like that. Yeah, uh, I'm just gonna look it up. Gage? No, it's not Gage. Uh, yeah, something like that. So it's it's almost like um, uh, it's almost like the two of them in a way, isn't it? Yeah, because Robinson's even worse than he is. <laughs> well, right. So Robinson's the one. That's acting on the bad impulses, and and uh, Bardemo is just like illuminating them, I guess, for us. Hmm. No, oh. that's interesting. Yeah, if you make that comparison between um, Lude is his name. Lude. There it is. Yeah. So that's a that's a great parallel. Johnny Truant as Bardemo and a uh, Bardamu and uh, and then Lude as Robinson. Huh. Yeah, that would be. Uh, there's an essay for you to write, Doug. <laughs> this could be someone's doctoral thesis, as discovered <laughs> on Forty Two Minutes. <laughs> you no, know, that works well. Um, but uh, yeah, so what else? Um, well, so I, I think we probably have to talk about like some of his textual things that he developed that they mention are the ellipses. Mm. And so that almost makes it poetic in some way. Yeah. I I think it's prose poetry all the way through. You know, it's um, there's some great passages. 
like and and there's it's almost like aphorisms all the way through he's got he he's got great advice <laughs> in some places you know um like uh i was just reading and just just checking my notes like he said actually it's it's never good to discourage someone you know just something like that you know yeah it's never good to discourage someone yeah that's true <laughs> you should never discourage someone even if they have as like a crazy impossible plan don't discourage them um because because life is too short well i think that like the way this begins is really interesting because it really just it almost launches in like a movie like uh it's like hey uh you know i'm at this cafe i'm talking to this guy and then all of a sudden the army walks by and then all of a sudden he's in line with the army and then he's he's at war yeah, yeah, and and right after he calls himself an anarchist, <laughs> you know, his friend his friend calls himself his friend calls him an anarchist, and then he calls himself an anarchist, and then he's he he finds that he's part of the army and in in the war. Now yeah. I think I read a little bit about him, and and like he did that I think despite his parents. Oh really? Yeah. Before like he joined, he joined before the war. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, like a couple of years before the war, but uh, yeah, and and then something that we didn't talk about either is the fact that um, he was studying on and off to become a doctor, mm -hmm. and then yeah, the second half of the book he was like a OBGYN or something somewhat like that but there was also there's also a number of things that were happening that i was hard you know like uh the like he joined a theater troupe for a while and he uh he was part of some kind of crypt thing and um and then he was running yeah, like a a mental institution, and uh, yeah. the the like the director of the institution decided he wanted to get in touch with the, like the essence of Englishness. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> he, well, he yeah he he freed his his mind through English literature basically. Uh, so he, but um, yeah, it's interesting. Like we said. Uh, how he's such a like kind of a fascist character, but he, I don't know if he really fits into that character. Like he, he's definitely misogynist. Like you can't get around that, you know. But uh, um, he, is he racist? You know, like he, like in um, in Africa, he he's saying, yeah, the the uh, the blacks are as bad as the, the whites, you know, basically, you know, like, it, and as good, like he, he, he likes, he says he likes the easygoing ways of, of the Africans that he meets. So yeah. I would say he definitely has like a nuanced view of the world, but at the same time, he knows his place in that world. Yeah. Like as like this... a superior, the same, same way with, with women. And so he would feel empathy and want to care for them but at the same time he knew that he was superior oh and so like when he was angry it's like oh yeah that bitch that slut you know blah de blah yeah like he like this section in um uh, where he's in the crazy 
boat going to Africa and everybody on the ship turns against him as they don't know who, who he is because he's the only, he, he actually is the only guy who pays for a passage to Africa and everybody's wondering like, who is he? Is he a spy or is he a ex-con or what some guy escaping the continent or something? Um, so then he's, so everybody on the, on the ship turns against him, but this, this passage is, I'll just read this part. This is excellent. Um, so what is he saying? It didn't take long. Uh, anyways, yeah, it starts out, it didn't take long. In that despondent, changeless heat, the entire human content of the ship congealed into massive drunkenness. People moved flabbily about like squid in a tank of tepid, smelly water. From that moment on, we saw, rising to the surface, the terrifying nature of white men, exasperated, free of constraint, absolutely unbuttoned, their true nature, same as in the war, that tropical steam bath called forth instincts as August breeds toads and snakes on the fissured walls of prisons. In the European cold, under gray, puritanical northern skies, we seldom get to see our brothers' festering cruelty, except in times of carnage. But when roused by the foul fevers of the tropics, their rottenness rises to the surface, that's when the frantic unbuttoning sets in, when filth triumphs and covers us entirely. It's a biological confession. Once work and cold weather cease to constrain us, once they relax their grip, the white man shows you the same spectacle as a beautiful beach when the tide goes out. The truth, fetid pools, crabs, carrion, and turds. <laughs> so, so he's not, I, don't, I wouldn't call him a... A white supremacist with that paragraph, you know. Well, no, I mean he definitely equally hates everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. Except you read um, there's Except certain maybe passages. Kids like children. There's hope, uh, hopefulness. I yeah, think, that arises yeah. in some kids. He he. Um, it's it's not that he. I don't know if he's the same as um, uh, in the tunnel, you know? He, it's not like there's a, a... It's not like a total spitefulness that he has because when he does find people of good nature, right, he praises them for it, you know? Like that guy, El Cid, El Cid, or I don't know how to pronounce it, in um, Africa, and he... At first, he takes in, in this guy's like a sergeant or something, maybe a French. I, f I forget his position, but um, at first he takes him for another, just another kind of con man, right? But then he finds out that this guy is saving up all his money and sending it to France to um, raise his uh, niece because her parents are are gone. Um, yeah, and so she has no one else to look after her, and so he's he's working like a dog in Africa to to send money back to her. That's where all his savings are going. And so when when uh, Bardamu encounters this guy and finds out his his true story, he's like, this guy's like I'd like to read that passage, but I don't know where it is. He um, he's like, yeah, this guy, he's up with the angels, you know, and I I feel like a slug even talking to this guy. <laughs> You know, so so when he finds human goodness, he praises it. Um, 
So it's not uh, in the tunnel. It's all it's all kind of resentment. You know, it's not. It, uh, you don't even get a sense that there that he believes in human goodness at all, except except through poetry, or something, or through writing. But uh, but at least with Bardamu, he he. Um, he's in tune. He's in tune with with. I don't know with with trying to trying to help people. I think you know, like he and he respects people who are genuinely trying to help and and rising above their nature, which is tends to be greedy and selfish and and so on. You know, um, but he's not he's not denying that the good side is there. Um, whereas in the tunnel, I'm not sure. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. <laughs> You've been listening to the 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club on 42 Minutes production of SyncBook Radio on the SyncBook.com for more information about journey to the end of the night be sure and check all the the links and the show notes for more information about the sync book our guests to check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via itunes please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com if you like this podcast check out others it's currently all the sync book radio archives are free they almost disappeared forever. Feel free to use the search feature to explore the connections. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And his house burned down during the night of May 1968, destroying manuscripts, furniture, and mementos, but leaving his parrot, Toto, alive. <laughs>
I must do what's right. Sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti. I seek to cure what's deep inside, frightened of this thing that I've become. 